I present to you Tim Wise. Thank you. Thank you very much. I want to uh, thank the fine folks here at the church that made this event possible and saw fit to bring me to it and to have me be a part of your family for the evening and of the larger community. Thank you very much. I want to uh, thank the fine folks here at the church that made this event possible and saw fit to bring me to it and to have me be a part of your family for the evening and of the larger community that this uh, institution serves. I want to say to you that it is a, an honor and a privilege to be here, not just a, not just a white privilege, though, uh, <laughs> though it may well be that, too. Um, I don't know. But it's all kinds of privilege, and I'm glad to be able to be here and to, uh, to share some words with you. As a matter of moral, ethical, and I think also practical uh, responsibility, I want to say at the outset, before I really get into the substance of my remarks, something that I try to include in all of my presentations. Sometimes I forget. Uh, sometimes I don't get around to it until the Q&A. Uh, sometimes I say it up front, which is what I'm going to do here. As much of a privilege as it is for me to be here and to have such a fantastic crowd, both in terms of quantity and, I'm sure, quality, because you're going to have fantastic questions, and I'm quite confident of that. Um, I also think it's important that as a white man seeking to be an ally, acting in solidarity with folks of color around this country who really have always done the hardest work when it comes to fighting racism, they have always taken the greatest risk, they have always been the ones most endangered when speaking out against those things that I too speak out against, it is incumbent upon me to suggest to you that as nice as it is for you to come and to hear me and to listen to me and to enjoy the presentation and to give me the uproarious applause that I fully expect when I am done, that the real measure of our progress as a society on these issues will be that day when a man or woman of color can stand in this place or any other place of the many that I have been at the podium have a crowd this large who is going to give them the same uproarious applause and recognition and respect that I feel fairly confident I'm going to receive. And the reason I say that is because when those of us who are white do this work, we know if we have any integrity and awareness whatsoever, and surely we try to, that it is too often the case that when folks of color say the very same things, and they say them just as well or better, and they have said them for longer, and with far more urgency, frankly, than many of us, they are routinely ignored, they are accused of exaggerating, they are retaliated against in ways that we are not. And so while I appreciate the opportunity to come before you and to share these thoughts, I hope that you will be every bit as supportive of, not only here, but in any venue in the greater Philadelphia area, those persons of color both prominent and not so prominent, media famous and not so media famous, authors of seven books and authors of nothing more than social media posts who nonetheless have got important things to say to you. And I hope that you will be there when these young folks of color who lead this Black Lives Matter movement that is so critical to our survival as a society right now need you in the streets with them and need you in the communities with them, that you will be there with them. Because being here with me is fine, but it will not change this country. Being there with them is critical, and it might. And so I implore you. 
to do that as well. And the reason I say that is not just a matter of moral responsibility, but because it speaks to the issue at hand this evening that's the name of the flyer, the name of the event, Moving Beyond Racism. If we're going to do that, we're going to have to learn to hear truth from difficult places and learn truth from people that our culture has encouraged us to ignore. And there's many more things that we will have to do. I'll talk about those this evening. I think perhaps among the most important as we move forward and try to move beyond racism as the topic of this title suggests, the first thing is that we have to be clear-headed about what it is that we're trying to move beyond. What exactly is this thing called racism, which word we use very loosely and throw around very regularly, but rarely define and more to the point, rarely conceptualize in a way that is helpful and in a way that illuminates the path ahead. I want to suggest to you that our understanding of racism should encompass at least three principles. One, that racism is primarily structural and institutional rather than interpersonal and individual. I will explain why in a second, but just keep that in mind. Second, that racism at the individual level, to the extent it is a problem there, is principally subconscious, unconscious, and implicit, and therefore more dangerous than the overt and obvious racism that we as a society have seen for so many generations. The fact that it is more subtle doesn't make it less problematic, it makes it more so, but it's worth noting that that is what the evidence tells us is true. And then third, that racism is an understandable and predictable outgrowth of the American creed. Now that one is going to get me in trouble with some folk, but I assure you it is easy to prove and I shall do so shortly that racism is not an aberration in our culture. It is not an accident. It is not a mistake. It is not something that just happened because we weren't thinking clearly. It is embedded in the American creed itself and unless that creed is fully interrogated, it will remain so. I will take those things one at a time. First, that racism is principally structural rather and institutional rather than simply interpersonal. Here's what I mean. A lot of times we talk about racism and we get embedded in this discussion about who's a racist? Are you a racist? Am I a racist? Is she a racist? Is he a racist? Are those cops racist? Are those employers racist? Are those racist teachers? And if so, how do we get them fired and removed from their positions? And how do we call them out on social media and all the things that sort of give us that warm, fuzzy feeling when we do it because we feel we have taken a, a blow for righteousness. Right? Right? Are they a racist? It's like I started out doing work against David Duke in Louisiana in 1990 and 91. It's so easy, isn't it, to call out a David Duke. It is so easy, isn't it, to call out a Klansman, a white supremacist, a neo-Nazi, somebody in the Ferguson Police Department or the court system that sends around racist emails. It doesn't take a lot of bravery, but it sure feels good. Right? And yet that really isn't the point, is it? I'm not suggesting we don't call out individual racists, but we have to go a bit deeper than that. Here's how I know. Two years ago, there was an article in the front section of the New York Times, and it was about a study that had just been released regarding how people get jobs in the modern post-recession economy. And I'm saying post-recession somewhat in quotes because I realize that for millions of Americans, the recession really never ended, and for millions of them, it didn't actually just start in 2007 either. It had been going on for a very, very long time. It just hit some white folks in 07. That's why it became a national media story. But anyway, that's a different lecture for a different night. 
Um, and in any event, this article in the New York Times was saying, very interesting, it wasn't really framed as a racial story, but the subtext really is very hard to miss if you're willing to open your eyes and see it. The story said that roughly half of the jobs in the new economy, and particularly those sort of in better paying type professions, were being filled not by open competitions whereby the most qualified person got the job, not because of merit or ability, but because of letters of recommendation written on behalf of new job applicants by people who already worked at the company in question. Half of the new, that's not even like regular old boys network, that's like a specific kind. That's not like I know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who put in a good word. That's I know Jim, he works in accounting, he wrote me a letter. Or I know Mary over there in the HR department. She likes me, she lives next door, she wrote me a letter. Now I want you to think about what it means that we have an employment market where half of the jobs ultimately require you to know someone already working at that firm in order to have a shot at one of those jobs. That's not inherently about race. It doesn't intrinsically mean that people of color will be excluded from opportunities or women as women or working class folks as working class folks. But what do we figure the practical implications of that type of system are? In effect, if not intent, the effect of that is essentially what the article finally, well down into like the 30th paragraph, mentions to us, which is that overwhelmingly those who benefit from this particular kind of arrangement will be white, they will be male, they will be affluent, and they went to the right colleges, whatever we take that to mean, where they were able to make the right connections, which means that you could be a person of color, a woman of any color, a working class white guy for that matter, and be roughly scratched from half of the new jobs, irrespective of your ability, solely because of your identity. Explain to me what is the difference between that reality and a sign in the window that basically says, half these jobs ain't going to black and brown folks. What is the difference between that reality and a sign in the window that says, women, y'all are only pretty much eligible for half the jobs in this joint? There is no functional difference except this. If you put a sign in the window that said that, you could sue somebody, take them to court, and make them pay big money. But this arrangement that I just described to you is not illegal. And the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the 50th anniversary of which we celebrated last year, doesn't do anything about it. Can't touch it. Old Boys Network's not considered actionable in the job market, even though the consequences of them in practice institutionally and structurally are no different than if half of the jobs were being decided upon by overt bigots. There is no functional distinction here. So that's why I say we're talking about a structural and an institutional problem rather than an interpersonal one. There could be not one single overt racist or overt sexist in any boardroom or HR department of any company in America, and I'm surely not saying that that's true, but it could be true. It could be true, and the outcome would be no different than if half of them were racist and sexist, you see. And so we have to look at this as more than a problem of who is a racist and who isn't. Same is true with schooling. When we, as a country, take students and we provide them with profoundly unstandardized education. And this is not hyperbole or speculation on my part. This is something about which we brag as a nation. By God, we don't have big government running the schools. By God, 
we delineate all that to the local level. We let them choose their curriculum. We believe in local control. We believe in property tax funding of K-12 education. We don't want big, central, bad, federal government doing education like they do in every country with which we like to compare ourselves and which usually beat us on every international test. We wouldn't want that. We would rather every little village and hamlet run their own school. So we have profoundly unstandardized schools with profoundly unstandardized curriculum, profoundly unstandardized financial resources, profoundly unstandardized teacher training. And at the end of that process, we give all the kids who come through it, what? A standardized test. And then we act shocked. We act absolutely profoundly shocked when at the end of an unstandardized process, children ask the same questions on a standardized test, don't all do equally well. And then we say to those who didn't do as well, who will disproportionately be students of color, particularly those of low and moderate income, who were likely to be in schools without the equal resources, that they now cannot go to this college or that college or any college at all. And we act as if that's not the perpetuation of systemic inequality or injustice or systemic racism and classism, I should point out as well, because the two are so heavily intertwined and intersect there. Again, it's not about whether there are individual teachers in the classroom who are at some level racist, I suppose, that there are. But even if there weren't one, so long as we have a system that does not guarantee, ensure, or even promise to provide equal resources to students. And so long as the students on the short end of that educational resource stick are disproportionately people of color, simply having a standardized testing regime that determines if they will graduate, if so, what kind of diploma shall they receive and to which college they will then matriculate is inherently to perpetuate racial injustice. That is a far more important issue for us to address than whether or not this teacher or that teacher or this teacher or that teacher might be at some level biased. At the culture of policing, we see the same thing. So I suppose we can cast about looking for individual officers who engage in racist actions and point them out and try to get them fired. And by the way, when they act in racist ways, I believe they should be. But is that really the deeper issue? See, I would suggest to you, go back to 2009. Remember when Harvard scholar Henry Louis Gates was arrested in his own home for supposedly breaking into the home, right, and then engaging in disrespectful and abusive and uh, other types of conduct when the officers, you know, questioned his presence in his own home, the one he pays for, his home, right? Now, keep in mind, Henry Louis Gates, 57-year-old man at the time, walking on a cane, accused of breaking into his own house because 57-year-old men walking on canes often, often the chief perpetrators of B&Es in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But a white woman who lived in the neighborhood who had never apparently seen Henry Louis Gates, even though he'd lived there for several years, got nervous. Black man entering a house when he didn't have a key, so he was sort of knocking up against the door, trying to get in, you know, to his own house. And she asked another white woman, can you call the police? Because, like, she didn't have a cell phone or whatever. And the other woman who wasn't from there is like, sure, I guess. And so she calls the police, and they come, and then they ask him for identification. And I'm quite certain that Henry Louis Gates got a little lippy with the cops. You would get a little lippy with the cops too if in your own kitchen they were demanding that you prove that you lived there. Right? Not saying it's a good idea to get lippy with the cops. I don't recommend it. It's not the course of action that I would suggest any of us go on, but I'm suggesting that we might do that. 
And I should suggest to you and point out, it's not illegal to do that. So that when the Cambridge police arrested him for disorderly conduct, for yelling at them on the lawn of his house, he did not break a law. He did not break a law. The Massachusetts Supreme Court had already adjudicated that issue on two different occasions and concluded that you can yell at a cop in public and you have done nothing legally wrong. Again, not recommended behavior, especially if you're black. Don't do this. Don't do this. But it's not illegal, so they ultimately had to drop the charges. Now, a lot of folks in the intervening weeks got caught up in a discussion about whether that officer right, was a racist or not. And it was the wrong question. It wasn't a question of whether he was a racist. It was a question of whether we live in a police culture that criminalizes much more readily black and brown bodies, is more quickly ready to see misdoing and wrongdoing in them irrespective of the evidence, and to some extent are conditioned to see that and then act as such. And if you want to know to what extent that's true, all you have to do is what's look, look at what's going on in Ferguson and similar communities. I'm not talking just about the killing of Mike Brown for a minute. Let's step beside that and beyond that. And let's look at the fact that you have police officers in urban communities of this country, Ferguson included, that are walking around, now think about the symbolism of this, walking around in fatigues and camo. Now, this may seem to be a tertiary issue, but I suggest to you it is the issue. What purpose is camouflage for? Well, if it's green, it's to help you hide in the jungles of Southeast Asia. If it is brown and tan, it is to help you hide in the desert. I don't know about you. I don't know of too much lush jungle or desert oasis in American urban communities with which police would need to blend in so that when they roll up in camo fatigues, they are sending a very clear message that what? They are at war with certain communities. And trust me, they do not roll up in camo on the main line. They do not roll up in camo in the suburbs. They do not roll up in camo in the rural areas. That is reserved for urban communities. They are the ones with whom they see themselves at war. And a memo just uncovered in Ferguson confirms it, where folks there in the police department and the National Guard and all the folks that were sent in to take care of the situation there back in the late summer of last year were referring to the people of Ferguson openly as the enemy, the adversary. This is not how middle class and above white folks are described by our police departments. It is simply not. It has never been so. And so when that happens in urban spaces of color, what does it tell us? It tells us it's not a couple of cops who maybe have bad attitudes about peoples of color. It's about a police culture that sees itself as counter-positioned to the very people it is sworn to protect and defend from wrongdoing. How can you serve and protect a people for whom you have such contempt? Why should you even be allowed to police a community for which you have such contempt? Because see, that's the question we're going to have to start asking. It's not enough to have body cameras. And it's not enough to maybe take these decisions about indicting officers out of the hands of local prosecutors, though I think that's important because Let's be honest, even the best intended prosecutor is going to have a hard time, I think, in most cases, 
bringing charges against the very police department with whom he or she works on a daily basis. That's tough. There's a certain conflict of interest. So I think we need to revisit that. But is that really sufficient or do we need to go beyond and say, you know what, communities that are economically and racially marginalized ought to have final say on who gets to walk the streets with guns and badges in their communities. Maybe we ought to have new recruits spend 90 days on probation, getting to know the people in the community, going to the church leaders, going to the nonprofit community leaders, sitting in the cafes, having a cup of coffee, getting to know the people, knocking on doors, going doorstep to doorstep and sitting in the community before they get that gun and the full right to enforce the law. Because then at the end of that 90 days, the people know the cop and the cop knows the people. And then at the end of the 90 days, the people say, no, no, we don't like this one. If the people say, no, 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 this one we're not so sure of, then the people get to veto by plebiscite the hiring of that person. This would be better for cops and communities. Because let's be honest, if I'm a cop, I want people to know me. I want them to see me as someone other than an occupier. So it seems to me any decent officer, anyone really concerned about the community would jump at this, would say, absolutely, let me spend 90 days in a non-enforcement mode just getting to know people so that when they see me on the street, they won't fear me or hate me or dislike me either, and I won't fear them, hate them, or dislike them. It seems to me a win-win for everyone, but apparently as a country, we're not ready to have that conversation, yet we're just barely at the point of actually saying we need body cameras. So we got work to do, not just with individual officers, but with a culture of policing that is increasingly militarized and where there's no local control over who is in that uniform, whether it's dress blues or whether it's camo. I would suggest to you we might want to ask the same questions about who's educating our children in the schools. Maybe the community needs to have some real say on that. Because you can't go through five months of training with TFA or whatever else it might be. You've never been in the community. You don't know anybody in the community. You do five months of training with Teach for America, and then you let loose in the community as if you know something about them, and then we're shocked when you don't stay longer than two years. No, 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 no. So we have to revisit that as well. We have to say that the community in such a space has to have some autonomy, some self-determination if we want to move beyond racism. But again, that requires a systemic analysis. This is not about bad white people who are racist teachers or racist cops. This is about a system of domination and subordination within which even good people find themselves trapped. It's very hard for a good cop to do good when the culture is telling him or her to keep their mouth shut. It's very hard for a good teacher to speak out against those injustices when the system will reassign them to a different school. Think about the bravery that it took for those teachers in Seattle a couple years back who stood up to the standardized testing regime at Garfield and a couple other high schools and said, you know what, I know you want us to give these tests, we're not giving them. See, if one teacher does that, they'll fire him or they'll reassign her. But if a bunch of them do it, you can't fire us all. That was their attitude. They refused to give the test and the state back down. See, that's courage at the systemic level. But it's really hard even for a really good, caring, compassionate, even really radical teacher in a school to do that if they don't have the support of, let's say, the teacher's union as an institution, let's say the community that can get behind them, right? We have to look at it as an institutional issue. The second point, that racism is principally in the modern era when it is individual, and this is important, implicit, unconscious, or subconscious rather than overt. That's not to diminish that the overt is there. I don't think there's any question that it is, but it is to say that what the research tells us is that so much of modern racism has gone 
undetected because it exists at that unconscious and subconscious level that is sometimes more dangerous precisely because we don't interrogate it and see it and precisely because it remains under our conscious radar. We have 20 years of research on this, right? These subconscious bias implicit association tests which you can take online, they've been done hundreds of thousands of times now. And they've been validated by multiple studies suggesting that the overwhelming majority of Americans in general, white Americans in particular, but American folk in general hold implicit subconscious bias against black folks, also significant amounts of implicit and subconscious bias against Latino and Latina folk, against our indigenous Native North American brothers and sisters, certainly our Muslim brothers and sisters in a post 9-11 environment, and frighteningly that nearly half of black folks have internalized biases against themselves. See, that's the thing about colonizing people. You can't just colonize their land and their resources. You have to colonize their mind. And almost half of black folks have internalized those negative stereotypes and assumptions about themselves at the subconscious level. And that stuff can move you around the chessboard without you even knowing it. That's why it's so dangerous. You don't even realize that that's what forces, forces you forward. There was a study a few years back that took a bunch of nice white liberal folks for what that's worth. And it is worth, my friends, almost nothing. And it placed them in a nice, comfortable lab type room. And it hooked those nice white liberal folks. And I say nice white liberals because what had happened was they'd given them a test at the very beginning, right, to determine if any of them were like consciously prejudiced or racist. And they all passed the test with flying colors, flying colors. They were all incredibly open-minded and quote-unquote politically liberal. Then they hooked them up to brain scan imaging machines and set them in front of computer terminals where they flashed images on the screen for 85 milliseconds each. That being far too fast, too rapid an image for your conscious mind to even know that it saw an image, let alone what the image was. It's a subliminal image, like back in the 50s when they used to do that in movie theaters, right? They used to flash the word popcorn right in the middle of the movie as a way to sell you popcorn. And then all of a sudden, half the theater's like, oh, hey, I think I want some popcorn. I don't know why I want popcorn, but I'm going to go get some. You want some? Yeah, all of a sudden, I want some popcorn. What's all that about? Subliminal messaging. So they did these images, 85 milliseconds on the screen, and most of the images, really innocuous, very little brain activity as a result, right? Blade of grass, bunny rabbit, tree, ice cream cone, whatever. Not a whole lot of action. Then they flashed the image of a black male face on the screen for 85 milliseconds. And that part of the brain that controls executive function lit up like a Christmas tree. Now, for those who are not brain science experts, let me explain why. The part that controls executive function is the part that tries to shut down stress, shut down anxiety, respond to anxiety in a logical, rational way. So for these nice white liberal people, they see the black male face on the screen, something's happening that then causes that part of the brain that is supposed to respond logically to stress to all of a sudden light up like a Christmas tree. Why? They don't even know what they saw. It's just a face. But something happened, and as soon as that image was gone, that, that reaction went away. Now, these are nice white liberal people, so their executive function was saying, ooh, don't be prejudiced, don't be prejudiced, trying to shut down this prejudicial fear response. But the fact that it was there in the first place in need of being shut down is the point of the experiment. Right? 
It's like when I got on an airplane back in 2004, I've written about this, I've talked about it, some of you have heard the story, get on the plane going from Nashville to St. Louis and then on to Des Moines to go to a conference. And as I get on the plane, now keep in mind, at that point by 2004, I had been a professional anti-racist for 14 years. I'm not an amateur at this point. I'm a professional anti-racist. I've been doing this for a minute, 14 years, been speaking all over the country. I get on the plane, look into the cockpit, see not one but two black pilots at the controls of the plane. A very rare sight because less than 3% of commercial pilots in this country are black. So to have even one in the cockpit is rare. To have two is either extraordinary or it's a setup. by the airline, hoping that the flight will be rocky and then they'll have excuse to fire them. I'm just saying, I don't believe in conspiracies usually, but that might be one, right? Because I mean, really, what are the odds they're flying together? That seems weird, right? But so as I look in the cockpit, what do you think my reaction was? I would love to tell you that my reaction was free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. We have reached the moment of aviation equality. Let me call on my friends and tell them the good news. But if I told you that was my reaction, I would be lying. Rather, my response, not verbalized out loud, mind you, because I'm good like that, but subconsciously and then consciously in my brain creeps out into my head. Oh, my God, can these men fly this plane? And then I was like, what the hell was that? I caught it. I caught it just like the MRI that caught the executive function part of the brain lighting up. I caught it, so good for me, pat me on the back, I'm doing my work. The point is, I had to force myself to realize how absurd and racist that reaction was, you see? I had to catch it. I didn't run from the plane screaming, so good for me. But the point is, in spite of all I know intellectually, See, we don't always operate on the basis of what our intellect tells us. We operate on the basis of a lot of subconscious stuff that we've been fed over the years. I should have been happy to see black pilots. Like three weeks earlier, two white men had to get pulled out of the plane that they were getting ready to fly because they were too drunk to fly it. Right? Four months before that, two other white men got fired from Southwest because they thought it would be funny to take off all their clothes in the cockpit and then invite the flight attendants in. So I should have been happy to see black men because I know they do not believe that they can get away with getting naked on the plane. And then, and then having gotten naked, invite these white women into a tight space. I mean, those brothers know you don't do that. Only white guys would have the privilege that thought, well, I'm sure I won't lose my job or anything. And if I drink a whole bunch before the flight, I'm sure that'll be okay too. Like people of color would not even think to do that in most cases, right? That movie with Denzel Washington notwithstanding, that was a fiction. That was a fiction. <laughs> come on, come on, you, you know, that's not, that's not real. This was real. So I should have been happy. But see, the thing is, we've been conditioned. Advertising works. Right? So you don't have to be consciously biased against anybody. You've been exposed to it. Advertising works. We know that. That's why companies spend billions of dollars to sell you stuff. And it works. There's research that says 12 advertisements is all it takes for you to start exponentially increasing the likelihood that you'll purchase a particular consumer good. 12 ads. A dozen ads. That's why folks are going out and buying breakfast crunch wraps from Taco Bell at 6.30 in the morning. Nobody wanted that. None of y'all, three, four years ago, before they came out with that, were thinking to yourself and writing to Taco Bell saying, you know what we need? 
at 6.30 in the morning, a taco wrapped in a burrito with some eggs in it. None of y'all wanted that. There was no lobby. There was no Twitter campaign. There was no nothing. But somebody in the executive office of Taco Bell said, you know what? We ought to have a breakfast taco. Call it a crunch wrap. See what happens. And folks said, okay, I'll do an ad about that. And now millions of people at like seven in the morning are rushing out to Taco Bell. The first 10 times they saw the ad, according to the research, they were probably like, I don't know about that. That seems sort of silly. The 11th ad, they were like, huh, a breakfast taco, huh? By the 12th ad, it was like, sign me up. I'm at Taco Bell, seven in the morning. Now they got whole ad campaigns talking about people that hashtag breakfast switchers or something. I don't know what it is. They're like, they gave up Burger King and now they're going to breakfast tacos. Advertising. And here's the point of all this. I'm not telling you this just like for the cheap laughs, though I appreciate them. I'm telling you this because if they can make you buy consumer products like breakfast tacos or change brands of toilet paper or tennis shoes or toothpaste or what, what have you after 12 advertisements, how much easier do you think it is to get you to buy into racial stereotypes because you've seen those ads more than 12 times, so to speak. You've seen them figuratively speaking all your life. We've been exposed to them constantly, right? And so we have to deal with it at that level because if we're just casting about for villains, we miss the fact that it's sort of every one of us that's exposed to this and to one degree or another susceptible. The beauty of that recognition is that once you own that, you don't have to feel guilt about it. Now you can work with that, right? That's the thing. Apparently the research says white folks shut down when the issue of race comes up and people of color are in the room because we're deathly afraid that we're gonna say something and then people of color are gonna think we're racist. Okay, news flash for the white people in the room. People of color already assume you might be a racist. Like, done. See, done. You don't have to sweat that. You don't have to worry about, oh, if I open my mouth, they're going to think that. They already think that you can say nothing. You could, you could hibernate for 10 years. They would still think it. And it's not because people of color are being mean or judgmental when they say that. It's just people of color have been here for a minute. And they've been paying attention. And if they've internalized it against themselves, how do you think they're going to cut us slack as if we haven't, right? So people of color already start with the supposition that advertising works and most of the advertising about them has not been good. So the odds are really good that we've internalized it. The beauty of that is once you own that that's probably happened to you, there's no need to beat yourself up because it isn't about you. It's about this system. It's about this culture. It's about the messages sent by the culture every day. Third point, understanding that racism is understandable and predictable, however regrettable and wrongheaded, in that it is interwoven with the American ideology. Now here's something I started thinking about many years ago, but I only sort of came full circle back to it recently, thinking about this in the more recent, let's say, decade as a dad. I have two children, both daughters, they'll be 14 and 12 in the summer. And when you're a father or a mom, whenever you're a parent, right, Part of what you do is you try to figure out how do kids learn stuff because, you know, you notice your kids picking up stuff, some of it good, some of it bad, and either way, you sort of want to know what it is. What influences your children? How do their peers influence them? How do their teachers influence them? How effective are you at influence them? All of these things that we as parents want to know. Um, and so when it comes to race, since that's what I talk about and racism, I started interrogating that for myself as a father, not as a scholar, not as an activist or a writer or any of that, but but as a dad. And I started thinking about, you know, how does a kid, mine or anyone else, learn this stuff? And it struck me 
that you have to start at the beginning. What's the one thing that everyone in this society, either who was born and reared here or might well have been born, born somewhere else but has come to this country and been here for any significant length of time, is exposed to? What's the one thing, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, cultural background, religion, socioeconomic status, geographic location, or any other identity modifier, the one thing that we're all taught at some level, either in the home or if not in the home, by teachers, if not by teachers, perhaps by preachers, if not by preachers, by textbooks and politicians, and it's really sort of in the ether of the larger society, it's this, and only this, but very significantly this, that America, by God, is a place where anybody can make it if they're just willing to try hard enough. This notion of rugged individualism and meritocracy, that is the fundamental American creed. It is our creation myth. It is the secular gospel of the United States of America. It is something to which we're all exposed. And you may think, well, what's wrong with that? And on one level, I get it. I get it. I get it. And I get it in part because I'm a dad, right? Because don't think for a minute that I don't tell my daughters and that my wife doesn't that they can be anything they want to be if they're willing to work for it. Of course we tell them that. Of course, that's a way to incentivize effort. However, at least in our case, we make sure to put the asterisk at the end of that sentence because it's a very important asterisk to, end, to add. If you don't add it, you can be in real trouble. What does that asterisk say? It says, by the way, for that thing that daddy just told you to be true, that you can be anything you want to be if you're willing to work hard. You're going to have to do more than work hard as the individual human beings you are. You're going to have to realize that because you were girls and will soon be women, there will be boys and men and sadly some women as well who will believe that you are lesser because you are female so that you will have to work with other women and with male allies to eradicate sexism and patriarchy so that you will actually have sufficient and fully equal opportunity. That's an important side message to give. And sometimes I mention that and other parents get mad at me and they say things like, oh, shouldn't tell them that. You're going to give them a victim mentality. You're going to make them permanent victims. You're going to create in them a victim syndrome. No, I'm preparing them for the world as it is, not as I'd like for it to be, but as it is right now. To do any less would make me a pretty bad parent. It would be like sending my children down a dark alley at night and there's a fence at the end that I know is normally electrified but I don't tell them that it's electrified as I send them down the alley because I don't want to freak them out. So I just say, yeah, just go, just run. I know, it's dark. I know, scary, right? I know, just go. Yeah, there's a fence. I, electric? I don't know. And then they get down to the end and they hit the fence and now they've been shocked and they're laying on the ground. They go, Dad, why didn't you tell us about the electric fence? And I tell them what? That I didn't want to make them neurotic? At some point, we have to prepare our young people for the world as it is, but we as a culture don't add the asterisk. And so, at the end of the day, when we give them the American creed, but we don't put that caveat at the end that talks about systems of unfairness, what do we do? We set people up to internalize racism and sexism and classism. Think about it. When a child looks around, and they can look around and see it by the time they're five years old, certainly by the time they're seven or eight, they don't have to be anthropologists. They don't have to be sociologists. They just have to be awake. And they can look around and they can see the disparities in terms of who lives where and who doesn't. Who goes to school over there and who goes to school over here? Who lives in this neighborhood versus who lives in that neighborhood? What's the quality of the infrastructure over there versus over here? They can watch the evening news that first seven, eight minutes. They walk in the room while mom and dad or whatever, you know, or, or, or whoever the parental combination might be are watching the news and they see 
the television in that first seven or eight minutes, which is always the bad news, always the crime news. They see certain people being perp-walked to jail and other people not. Not because other folks weren't doing those drugs. Not because other folks weren't getting high. We ought to mention this on April 20th because y'all do know this is like weed day in America, right? 420 is like weed speak for we're going to get high today. But so like right now, there are literally thousands of white college students on campuses all across this country who have openly announced that they are going to go out on the quads of their universities and get high in front of cops knowing they will not be arrested. Meanwhile, this very day, I assure you, there are hundreds of black and brown folks being arrested for the very same activity in the very same towns where those colleges exist. But they won't be on the news tonight, or they will be. The white students who are getting high won't be. They won't be criminalized. They won't be going to jail. So the kid can see that. And when that child, let's say who's white first, sees the disparity that is visible all around, and they have been told that where you end up is all a function of your own effort, your own skill, your own determination, and your own character, what conclusion, pray tell, do you think they reach? By definition, they come to the conclusion that the reason those folks live over there, and it looks the way it looks, and the reason they go to those schools and those schools don't perform as well and the reason they go to jail is because they are bad and they are lesser and we over here are better. You don't have to teach them that consciously. They will pick it up as the default position of the culture unless the asterisk is provided them when we talk about these things. And by the same token, a person of color, a child of color that age who looks around and sees the same disparity and has been taught the same lesson about wherever you end up is all about you. They pick that up from the culture, even if their parents know better and try to teach them differently and add the asterisk, but the culture is a really strong thing, right? That child of color looks around and the conclusion they come to might very well be internalized inferiority, self-doubt, right? Internalized oppression, as we call it. So we've got to talk about the consequences, not just of systemic structures of injustice, not just personal implicit bias and how marketing affects us in that regard, but also the way that the very cornerstone of our ideology, unless we're willing to hold it up to scrutiny and problematize it, actually contributes to this problem. The next thing we have to do is understand our implication in it. A lot of times we're willing to talk about racism, but not the privileged side of that equation. But you can't have a down without an up. If certain people are being discriminated against, let's say, three million times a year in housing, that's what the... Research, both public and private, says three million times a year people of color discriminated against when looking for a home or an apartment to rent or to purchase. That's three million more job, or excuse me, housing opportunities for folks like me. Right? If certain people of color are being excluded from certain job opportunities, whether it's because of overt racism or those old boys networks, that's more opportunity for me. You can't have a down without an up. You can't have certain people targeted for discrimination and other people not preferenced and privileged. We don't like to talk about it so much so that our language even reflects this fear. We don't want to talk about it to the extent that we use this term for people at the bottom. We don't have a corollary, people at the top. So we use the term underprivileged, don't we? And we use it compassionately. We say, we're going to go help these underprivileged children. We're going to go paint houses in this underprivileged community. We're going to go work in these underprivileged schools. Two problems with that word. Number one, it is by definition the passive voice. And my third grade grammar teacher told me never use the passive when the active will do. So if you say underprivileged, what you just said is nobody did anything to anybody at all. It's just there's privilege and wow, there you are under it. 
fascinating. How'd you get down there? Shh, don't want to know. <laughs> don't ask that question. Nobody did anything to anybody. It's coincidence. It's sunspots. It's lunar tides. It's something with no cause. Right? The second problem with that phraseology is that it's a relative term by definition, not because Tim Wise said so. Basic rules of grammar. Roger's thesaurus says so. If you have an underprivilege by definition, you must have an overprivilege, but that word does not exist in any dictionary found on the planet. So much so that if you type it in the Microsoft Word, you're going to get that little red line that's going to pop up that says, nope, you're making that up. That word doesn't exist. Underprivileged, it's in there. Overprivileged, who's that? But there must be such a group because if certain people have less of a valuable commodity, what do we think happens to the excess? Did it get buried in a great big hole in the backyard and just nobody used it? They were like, nah, we don't need that. You don't have enough of it, but we don't want the extra. Just leave it there. That's not what happens. Certain people have less of a valuable commodity. I promise you others have more by definition. Right? So we talk about it in a way that tries to avoid our implication. And I know why, because we're so busy trying to be good people. But again, going back to the point I made earlier, good people can be caught up in bad systems. And then those good people have an interest in not seeing the truth. So much so that if you go back 50 years, here we are, half a century after the Voting Rights Act, 51 years after the Civil Rights Act, 52 years after the March on Washington. Go back and look at the way that white folks were thinking about this even then. Because see, at least I sort of get it when white Americans are thinking to themselves that we've conquered these problems now. I get it. I don't agree with it, but I get it. Because there are enough outward manifestations of progress, right? Oh, black president, that does it, right? I'm sure that there were probably some people in Pakistan who thought that patriarchy had been smashed when Benazir Bhutto won. Um, I doubt that any women thought that, but I'm sure there were some men who might have, or when Margaret Thatcher won, or Corazon Aquino won, or Indira Gandhi won, or, or uh, you know, many of the other women who have been elected to uh, heads of state in other countries. Didn't mean sexism was gone, didn't mean patriarchy had been eradicated, but I'm sure there were some voices who probably thought that it fundamentally flipped the script on the systemic injustice. So I get it, I get it. But here's what's frightening to me. You can go back half a century at a time when my guess is everyone in this country, regardless of ideology, would agree, at least now they would, that things were horribly unfair. Because it doesn't take any courage, does it, to condemn apartheid from a half century ago? It doesn't take any courage to talk about how bad white supremacy was 50, 51, 52, 53 years ago. Right? In fact, sometimes people will do that just to contrast it with how great things are now. They'll say, oh, my God, it was terrible back then. Okay, but what were white folks thinking back then? Like when back then was not the past, when back then was the present, when back then was like going on like that day? See, the Gallup organization tells us the answer to that because they went out and polled white folks. And they asked a large sample of white Americans, do you think that, they use the term racial minorities, do you think racial minorities are treated equally in your community in education and housing and employment? Now, of course, half a century in retrospect in the rearview mirror, we know the answer is, of course not. And you would hope that white folks even then, mostly rational, mostly compassionate, mostly decent human beings, would also have said, of course not. But in fact, two out of three said, sure, everything's fine. That was the year of the March on Washington, y'all. So like basically what that means is the night of the march, right, August 28th of 1963. Now, if y'all have been in D.C. in late August, it is hot. 200,000 people do not go protest on the mall in Washington just for the fun of it if there isn't something wrong. But basically two out of three white folks are watching the news that night, Walter Cronkite or whomever, and they're like, 
I don't get it. Why are they so mad? And that one there, why is he dreaming? What's that about? What? What's wrong with him? Everything's fine. The year earlier, 1962, they asked white folks, do you think black children have just as good a chance to get a good education as white children? Again, the answer in retrospect, obviously no, but in 62, 87 out of 100 white folks said yes. Now, what does that mean? Those aren't bad people. Those aren't idiotic people. Those aren't people who are incapable of discerning truth. People that are really truly stupid don't end up with as much power as white folks had in 1963. So it can't be ignorance, pure ignorance, in the sense of just being unable to see the truth. But I would contend it was because white folks, we didn't have to know the truth. See, we didn't have to know, because if we don't know what's going on in black and brown folks' lives, there was no penalty for that obliviousness, was there? It wasn't going to be on the test. And by that, I mean whatever test you had to prove, make you competent, get out of college, grad school, law school, medical school, get a professional certification in any career. You'd have to know that. And here's the thing. Whatever you think has changed in 50 years, that right there, that hasn't. We still get to be oblivious to black and brown truth. We don't have to know. It's still not a requirement. People of color have to learn the stuff we think is important because that will be on the test. It's going to be the whole test. But we still don't have to know their truth. It's like that movie, The Matrix. If y'all never saw it, you should. Don't watch the second and the third one. The rest of the trilogy is lousy. But like the first one, really good. Even though Keanu Reeves is in it, it's still good. Because Lawrence Fishburne is in it. He's brilliant, right? And the writing's brilliant. And even Reeves is pretty good in it. I'll be honest. I'll be fair. Cut him a little slack. There's a scene in it right, where Neo, the character played by Keanu Reeves, is given two pills and he's given a choice of taking one or the other by Lawrence Fishburne's character, Morpheus, and he says here, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you can take the blue pill or the red pill. If you want to take the blue pill, you can go back to sleep and remain oblivious to what's really going on in this society. That's what everybody else does. They don't want to know the truth. They'd rather die than know the truth. So if that's what you want, take the blue pill. You don't have to know. Or you can take the red pill and I can take you down the rabbit hole and show you how deep it goes. And you won't be oblivious. You'll see what's really going on. He takes the red pill and he starts to see all the stuff that's manifesting in the background of the system in which he's embedded. To some extent, that's the perfect metaphor for race in this country. Because to be a member of the dominant group is to be perpetually on the blue pill. Right? In fact, to be white in America, to be classified as such, is to have the luxury of walking around with a blue pill IV drip from the time that we're children. And we don't even know we're schlepping this thing around, man. This thing is like hooked to us and we're just like, I don't know what that is. I got some machinery on me, I don't know what that is. And then black and brown folks are like, don't you see this racism? Because see, they're on the red pill because they got to take the red pill just to know what is happening in their life, right? So it doesn't drive them insane, doesn't drive them over the edge. So black and brown folks are like, don't you see this? And we're like, no dude, blue pill, don't see a thing, what? And it makes perfect sense. It means that our, our lens, it's not that we're bad people. It's not about being racist people. It's about having the luxury of having a lens that is distorted by our experience, right? This is why white and black folks view the justice system so differently. This is why white and black folks had such a difference of opinion about the OJ trial. And by that, I mean the first one. I know there've been several since. I just mean the first one, right? OJ gets acquitted, two-thirds of white folks thought it was the most horrible injustice in the history of the justice system. White folks were like, oh my God, I can't believe the system broke down. Because that doesn't normally happen, apparently, in our world. Two out of three black folks thought that the verdict was legit. Now that doesn't mean two out of three black folks actually think he's innocent. I talked to a lot of black folks after that trial, and a lot of them were like, oh, I think he did it. 
But I just don't think that the burden of proof was met. And that's y'all's system. You set it up and you got to play by the rules that you created. And white folks were all upset. Because here's, and why did black folks think that? Well, because there was evidence that suggested that, that some of the blood evidence could have been planted because the lead detective who found most of that evidence had, as was shown at trial, a history of racism. And for black folks, there was like a bell that goes off like, I have seen this movie before. I know how this ends. And so for black folks, that now starts to raise reasonable doubt. That doesn't mean that that's what happened. That doesn't mean that the evidence was planted. That doesn't mean that OJ didn't do it. And that doesn't mean that black folks were right when they thought that. But now it wasn't irrational, was it? Because two and a half years later, when the Ramparts Division in the Los Angeles Police Department, when the scandal there broke, and what was that scandal? See, this is faded from our memory, but half a dozen to a dozen members of the LAPD were found to have indeed planted evidence on criminal suspects to sweeten the cases against them. So when black folks in LA and elsewhere were like, yeah, this might have happened, and white folks were like, well, that's ridiculous. Who's ever heard of such a thing? That's the most ridiculous accusation I've ever heard. Two and a half years later, see, there's a reason that it wasn't irrational. Might not have been right, but see, black folks' lens and brown folks' lenses, because a lot of Latino folks thought that too. They had a history in LA going back to the Zoot Suit riots at least of the mistreatment and brutality toward Latino folk. A lot of folks of color generally have a different lens. Doesn't mean that lens is always perfectly accurate. And it doesn't mean that white folks' lens is always wrong. It just means that our lenses reflect our treatment in the system. If we want to have more similar attitudes about society, we have to have more similar experiences. If we want to bridge the attitudinal gap, the perceptual gap, we have to bridge the experiential gap. That means we have to accept our implication in that system. And finally, finally, we have to understand that there is good news and there is hope here. If we're going to move beyond racism, we have to do this very certainly. We have to engage not in a colorblind analysis and a colorblind practice, one that says, let's avoid this discussion, let's not notice color, let's not talk about it. So as Mika Pollock has called it, color mute. We don't want to be that either. A lot of folks, a lot of, a lot of folks, including a lot of really nice liberal and progressive folks, sometimes think that's the way to go. Let's downplay race. Let's talk about other stuff. Let's talk about what brings us together, not what divides us, except the things that divide us are so central to our national experience that if we don't talk about them, we can't solve them. To be blind to color, as Julian Bond reminds us, is to be blind to the consequences of color and particularly the consequences of being the wrong color in the United States of America. So you can't solve a problem that you're not willing to name, that you're not willing to call out. Now the good news is if we do call it out, we can implement policies and practices and procedures in our own lives. Not, I'm not even talking about public policy. I mean in the institutions where we work, in the schools that our children attend, right? Think about it. What we found from some of the research is, for example, when you're trying to deal with some of those subconscious biases that affect the way we evaluate each other, maybe in a job search or in the classroom or on an admissions committee or a loan application in the bank, right? That one of the ways we could get at that is by making sure that the people in a position to do those evaluations who will usually disproportionately be dominant group members, right? Make sure that they are exposed to what some of this research says about subconscious bias. Sometimes it's as easy as before that search committee does its choosing of the next faculty or before that admissions um, office in the college chooses the next year's students or before that teacher goes into that multicultural classroom. It's as easy as actually just giving them some material, just a one-page description of what some of the research says and encouraging them to understand that sometimes, despite their best intentions, we fall into these cognitive mistake traps 
where we fall back into conditioning. So just make sure you don't do that. Just making people aware of how easy it is to do that has actually been demonstrated to reduce the likelihood that we will do it. There was one study took two mock juries, watched the same trial, both of the sets of juries all white, watching a trial against a black defendant. At the end of the trial, one jury was told just, you know, their jury instructions were real simple. It was just, hey, go back. Here's what the law says. Good luck. The other jury was told the law, but they were also told, listen, there is some evidence that even when we don't intend to do this, sometimes we view people of different races through a cultural lens and a, and a prejudicial stereotype lens that we've been exposed to over the years. So just make sure you're not doing that. Um, now, good luck, right? And then they go back and do their deliberations. What they found wasn't so much that the outcomes of the trials were different. Like, it's not that the one acquitted that much more than the other. But what was instructive was that the group that was told about the possibility of subconscious bias took twice as long to deliberate. They were much more careful. They were much more uh, deliberative. They had better, deeper conversations. And the researchers speculate that the reason was once they'd been put on notice, right, about how easy it would be to, frankly, screw up and do the wrong thing. They wanted to get it right. They wanted to make sure that if they did a convict, that it wasn't based on some prejudice or stereotype, that it was really based on the evidence. And the other folks were just sort of slapdash and really quick to get done because they hadn't been given that instruction. What does that tell us? It tells us that if we are alerted to this and trained to think about these issues in our various routines that we perform, particularly if we're in a position to evaluate others, um, that we can actually do better, that we can reduce those biases, but we have to work that into the process. That's color conscious, not color blind, right? That's, that's, that's very color conscious as opposed to color blind and color mute. The final thing we have to do is create counter narratives that push back on that myth of meritocracy and rugged individualism. It's not enough to challenge it with data. We've got to challenge it with the reality of our own lives because every single one of us in here no matter how wedded we may be to that notion of rugged individualism, every one of us in here knows that we had help. Some of that help was color-coded. Some of that help was sex and gender-coded. Some of it was class-coded, but all of us had help. None of y'all were raised on an island by seals. Right? We all had help. Some of that help was government intervention. In my family's case, it was benefits from the GI Bill. It was the ability to get loans at a time that people of color couldn't have gotten them. In my own case, it was government loans for college. In other people's cases, maybe if you're a business owner, you still benefit from the various uh, and very generous subsidies that exist for private enterprise in this country, including a publicly created infrastructure, highway system, et cetera, that brings down the cost of doing business relative to what it would be. We've all benefited from very, if you make any money from the internet, that was initially, of course, subsidized and created with government money in the Defense Department. So every single one of us has benefited from something other than our own brilliance. And yet, because we remain wedded to that notion, it makes it real easy to look down on those on the bottom of the system and not be humble enough about where we are such that we might actually reach down to ensure that everybody has the same opportunity. I was having this conversation with a young man a couple years back at St. John's Prep in Danvers, Mass. Nice young man. But he was very angry at me because he thought that I'd insulted him as a white person talking about white privilege. He said, are you saying to me that the only reason I'm here at St. John's is because I'm white? And I said, no, man, that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm sure that you worked really hard and I'm sure you earned your way in and all of that good stuff. And he said, well, I just want to make sure because my dad worked really hard to make it possible for me to have this life that I have. He worked in the mills for years. He didn't take vacations. He worked 60 hours a week, worked his fingers to the bone just to make, and he talked about his dad for like five or six minutes. And I just let him go because I, I knew he needed to do that. And when he was done, I said, look, I, 
I want to say to you, first of all, that I think you had an extraordinary father. And I think you're really fortunate to have had that father. I didn't have that father. My father's an alco alcoholic and an addict. And he didn't have that same level of work ethic and initiative and drive and, frankly, mental and emotional health that it appears that your dad did. So on the one hand, you should be really grateful, and I'm really happy for you. I said, on the other hand, I'm a little confused because I'm not really sure what that has to do with you. I said, now, if it were up to me, I would admit your father into St. John's right now because he sounds amazing. He seems to have done a lot. He seems to have worked incredibly hard. You are 16. You have done nothing other than perhaps ace your chemistry final. And that's it. I said, unless you believe that you earned your father in a past life, and this was a Catholic school, so I knew he wasn't going to say yes. <laughs> unless you believe that you earned your family and that some other poor schlub who didn't have parents like yours earned their family, right, then the fact of your parents' sacrifice means nothing in terms of your own opportunity structure. That's the dirty little secret of the American system. Even if you believe that one generation can possibly acquire just based on their own hard work and effort, and even if they never received any kind of unjust head start at all, which I think is foolishness and an absurd conversation, but for the sake of argument, I'll indulge it. By the time any of the blessings of that first generation are passed down to the next generation, we are no longer talking about a meritocracy. We are talking about a system that is no fundamentally different in outcome than if it were a royal system of primogenitor and blood lineage passed down from royalty as it was in so many other systems before ours. Once we get to that, we're talking about an eight-lap race where somebody's had a five-lap head start, and we're telling the people who were born to the folks who lost the last lap, oh well, too bad, so sad, run faster, and then we're calling that fairness. If we would be as willing to challenge our own merit as we are other people's, because we like to challenge other people's, talk about how they're not as good as us. But if we could just be honest enough to say part of where we are is about the unjust advantages, whether it's connections or just luck, man. Like, I mean, honestly, the reason I'm here, and I'm going to end with this and take some questions, but just because I like to model the behavior I'm encouraging. I don't want to tell you to do something that I'm not willing to do. So here it is. And you, read my, you heard my bio at the beginning, and you know, it says I did all this stuff, and it mentioned that I was at Tulane. Well, in fact, it was being at Tulane that made it possible for me to be here this evening because it was there that I met the two men who gave me my first job out of college doing anti-racism work, and that job propelled me at a national level into sort of a spotlight position. That was that work against David Duke when he ran for the U.S. Senate and for governor. And so because this former Klan leader and lifelong neo-Nazi or white supremacist was on the precipice of becoming a U.S. senator and governor, it was obviously a huge national story, and any of us involved ended up a lot more amplified, a lot more focused upon than we otherwise would have been. Surely that was true for me at the age of 22 and 23. So if I don't go to Tulane, where I meet those men, I'm not going to get that job. And if I don't get that job, I'm not going to be doing what I'm doing today at this level. It just wouldn't have happened. My life would have gone differently. It might have been fa fabulous and fantastic, and maybe I'd be doing something really great, but I wouldn't be doing this. But how did I get to Tulane? See, that's the, that's the real question, isn't it? Well, there are two reasons. One has to do with whiteness. The other is about luck. The whiteness piece is very simple. I grew up in a 850-square-foot apartment. We didn't have any money. We didn't have any collateral. We had no credit that wasn't bad credit. And when I sent my financial aid forms in late to Tulane, they wrote me back and said, oh, man, you know, we really like you to be able to come, and we've already admitted you, but we only got eight grand. We hope you can get the other 12. Good luck. Right? 
But we were broke. We didn't have 12 grand sitting around, except for this. My mom was able to go to the bank and get a loan for $12,000 to make up the difference. Now, that's a heck of a trick. Banks are normally not in the habit of giving broke people money. So when they gave my mom 12 grand, how did that happen? It happened because my grandmother, her mom, was able to go down to the bank with her, putting her house up as collateral, a house that she and my grandfather, who'd been dead at that point for six years, had lived in for several years prior, Putting that house up as collateral, it was a house in a very nice neighborhood where the property values were always appreciating, and it was a neighborhood where very few, if any, black folks to this day have lived, let alone at that time, and not just by accident, but by custom, even after the Fair Housing Act had already been passed and in place for over a decade by the time they got it. I should also mention that prior to that, they had bought that house with cash because they were able to sell another house they had and then pay for the next one with cash. That other house they had paid for with cash from the sale of a previous house. That house they had paid for with cash from the sale of a previous house. That house they had bought in 1950 with a 15-year mortgage in a neighborhood that no black or brown family could have procured at that time. And my grandfather worked for the Corps of Engineers and before that the Army government jobs. That is to say that we have the house because of whiteness and because of the intervention and the payment of the taxpayers making it possible for me to go to Tulane, meet those men, and get that job. That's not about me, see? And it doesn't shame me to own that. That doesn't take away from whatever skills I actually have as a speaker, as a writer, as a thinker, or anything else. It's just to own the truth. And then there's the luck piece, which is even funnier. Because ultimately, the reason I'm at Tulane, it's even deeper and simpler and sillier than that. The reason I really went there was because I had fallen in love, or at least I, in the manner of a 16-year-old, had fallen in love. The way 16-year-olds do, right? Which is not really falling in love, but we think it is. And so I'd fallen in love with this young woman who was from Louisiana. I met her at a debate camp, a three-week debate camp at American University right before my senior year, and she told me I just had to go to Tulane because otherwise we'd never see each other. She was going to go to LSU. I was planning on going to Emory and debating for Emory. Tulane didn't even have a debate team. That's how in love I was. I'm like, okay, I'll just give up the only activity that I know and the only one for which I might have won a scholarship, and I'll go to Tulane. Tulane wasn't even on my radar screen, but she said, Tim, we'll never see each other. And I said, you're right. Oh, my God. So I went to Tulane, but now here's the kicker, right? Obviously, if I don't meet Monica, which means if I hadn't gone to American for camp and if I hadn't been a debater, I wouldn't have ended up at Tulane. But here's the really funny thing. The only reason I was a debater was because earlier in a former life, my primary thing had been baseball. I was a really good baseball player, like good enough to where I literally had uh, college scouts coming to my games when I was 11. And so that's really what I thought I was going to do. But for some inexplicable reason, my freshman year of high school, I had the worst tryout for the baseball team in the history of tryouts. It was like I'd never played the game. It was like I'd forgotten to throw. I couldn't hit. I couldn't field. It was embarrassing, and I got cut from the baseball team. So I had to find a different activity. The activity ended up being debate, without which I don't go to America, and I don't meet Monica. I don't end up at Tulane. I don't meet those men. I don't get that job. I don't get to fight David Duke. And you are listening to someone else tonight, and you might well wish that it had gone down that way. But if so, I cannot help you. Ultimately, what I'm saying is I'm standing in front of you not because of my own merit, not because of my own talent, but ultimately because of that jerk that cut me from the baseball team when I was 14 years old. And to him, Coach Cantrell, I say thank you and God bless you because you have made it possible for me to be here this evening and to share with you these thoughts and to encourage you on your path to continue to stand up for what is right and what is good and certainly what is necessary in this culture as we move forward. Thank you all so very much for being here tonight. I appreciate you. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you. So I know I went a little long and whatever, but we've got some questions and I do want to take at least a few. Um, so thank you all so much for hanging out. Thank you so much for being here. And also for opening our minds and helping us to be more aware of what's going on in our minds. I think that's the message, yes? Yes. <laughs> in two words. Yes. Yes. Um, I, we are collecting messages, I mean, we're collecting questions yeah. from uh, throughout the audience. Um, and while we're looking through them, I've had the privilege of asking a bunch of fun. Okay. <laughs> um, what I'd like to know is, um, this message isn't easy to hear in many places. And what I wanted to know was, what do you think is the one thing that people misunderstand most about you? About me? About, about your message. Well, I think, you know, some of it I addressed, and, but I think the, the, the piece that is perhaps most disturbing and distressing and, and saddening is this sense that some have that whether it's me or anyone else who critiques white supremacy as a system, white privilege as a manifestation of that system, or whiteness as an organizing principle, that we are therefore attacking white people. I think we have a fundamental problem distinguishing between white people and whiteness, and that's because we haven't been taught the difference, and so I understand it, but let me spell it out very briefly. White people do not exist as such. There is no such thing, and there has never been such a thing, and there is no biologist or geneticist that can demonstrate to you under a microscope what a white person is. Are there people of European ancestry? Yes. Are there certain alleles in the body and certain differences genetically? Yes, but they're incredibly small, roughly six genes out of 30,000 in the human genome that affect the things that we normally think of as race, skin color, hair texture, facial features. And they are not concordant or correlated with any significant human trait. So white people do not exist. I am not attacking, when we talk about white supremacy, white people. We're talking about a system called whiteness that was created so as to divide us from our brothers and sisters of color and particularly created so as to divide working class and struggling white folks from people of color with whom they had far more in common because when the elite of the colonies looked around and realized they were outnumbered, when you combine African enslaved folks with European indentured folk, one level above enslavement, you realize you're outnumbered pretty soon, they're coming for our stuff. So what do you do? You create the team called the white race. When our people came here, they weren't the white race. The Irish weren't the white race. The English had been killing the Irish forever. But all of a sudden they come and they start throwing down with Anglo folks. How does that happen, right? Italians, particularly Southern Italians, weren't even considered Italian by Northern Italians until the early part of the 1900s, latter part of the 1800s. So the fact is that whiteness was this trick that was played on the world. And when we talk about the system, we're not talking about the folks called white. There have always been people who called white that stood up against this system going all the way back to the colonies and there have been folks of color who have collaborated with it and still do to this day. So it isn't about the color of your skin, it's about how you choose to live in the skin you have and how you address the system. And I think the misunderstanding around that 
is maybe the most frustrating, right? Because we make it so personal when, as the old saying goes, this ain't personal, this is business. We have to get down to business. Yes, other questions? Thank yeah. Thank you. The next question, and I was told to stay in the middle so you could all hear me. Uh, how can black, brown Americans acquire political power in a white supremacist system that's invested in protecting its own privilege? Well, it's a complicated question with, a question with an answer that is probably several spots above my pay grade, but I'll take a shot at it. Um, and I say that with all seriousness because, you know, it's, it's dangerous for a white person, even one who's committed his or her life to struggling against this system, to think that our advice to black and brown folks is like a sure thing, you know? It's dangerous, and if I were black or brown, I'm not sure I would, you just take what I'm getting ready to say with a grain of salt because if my advice is bad, I will not be the one to pay the consequence. So think it through because I could be way wrong, and I don't think I would trust me just because I speak a good game when I tell you this. I feel as though the only way that power can really be obtained is that power has to be created by peoples of color in spaces where it can be and in places where it can be and it has to be taken in other places. And when I say that, I don't mean to suggest that I'm encouraging you know, uh, uh, the overthrow of the, of the government, A, because I'm, I think that's illegal, so I'm trying to be careful here. <laughs> But also, also because I think it's suicidal. That's not the way that a system such as this is going to change. And I think we have more than enough evidence of it. I do think that peoples of color have to decide at some point how much time they want to invest in trying to change existing systems run by white folks versus how much time they want to spend co-creating with allies their own institutions, their own schools, their own systems of law enforcement, their own systems of, of justice. Um, because I think in the long run, that that's going to be a key piece of it. You know, one of the things I think is interesting, and it's sort of an opening for us, and it's a, it's a dangerous one. We have to be careful with it. But I remember many years ago having this conversation with folks that were worried about, and rightly so, charter schools, because I think many of us who studied the charter system, we know that the, 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 the incentive for this, the impetus for this, was really, in many cases, the destruction of public education. It was being pushed by people who believed in the destruction of or not even the existence of public education. That doesn't mean every advocate for it is down with that particular ideology, but that was its origins. However, I think that so long as we have this thing called charter schools being done, I think that if I were a parent of color, or uh, even if I wasn't, if you have your children and you're liberation-minded and you can't find a school that's going to teach a liberation-oriented curriculum, and a progressive, even radical type curriculum that you ought to take advantage of the existence of the charter laws that allow those schools to be existed and say, hey, really, you're giving out charters? Cool. We're going to establish a freedom school modeled on the freedom schools that were put up in, in Mississippi in 1964, and we're going to teach radical pedagogy and liberatory pedagogy, and we're going to teach our children to think critically and become really soldiers in this battle against an un unfair and unequal system. Only two possible responses the school board's going to have. One is, uh, no, that's not what we meant in which case at least you will know, won't you, exactly how far they're willing to go with their idea of charters, or they may have no choice but to give it to you, in which case now you've got a freedom school. And just because charter schools are relieved of the burden, quote-unquote, of unionization doesn't mean you can't be a union shop, doesn't mean that you can't follow the school rules, just says that you don't have to, but if you're progressive-minded, you probably would. So I, t I say take advantage of these little openings that the system gives you 
that are maybe not meant for you, but that you can take advantage of to try to exploit. You know, people right now, you got a lot of young folks creating alternative media because of social media platforms. We have to do more of that. I think sometimes the mistake we make is thinking that if we continue to protest against the existing power structures, we can fundamentally change them. I think you can, but I think the better way to do that is to create your own structures, your own institutions that demonstrate a better outcome than the ones that the dominant group has, in which case I think that change is more likely. It's not guaranteed, but I think it's more likely. Yeah. This is Okay. I'll do my, it's like speed dating. I'll do my best. Okay. Uh, first one is written in the first person. Okay. I pastor a multi-ethnic church that addresses issues of race and racism on a regular basis. How do you deal with cultural racial fatigue while on the journey? For me, the way that I deal with that kind of fatigue, and it's a totally natural, normal human thing, particularly when you're inspired towards justice and you come up again and again against injustice with defeat to become fatigued. But what I do is I go back and I read and I reread the narratives of those persons of color and white allies throughout history who have been in this struggle when it was even harder than it is now. I mean, as hard as it is now, we've got ancestors all across the color line who have faced far more than what we face and who have persevered in spite of that. And for me, I know I can't give up. I can't allow myself to become battle-weary or burned out when they didn't. I can't allow myself to, I don't have the luxury of doing that. And when I go back and I read their narratives, and I'm talking about narratives from the period of enslavement all the way till the present day, it is inspiring. So go and read those stories, read those critical autobiographies, those memoirs of some of those folks of color and white allies. I've got a whole, uh, on my website, timwise.org, I've got a reading list, a recommended reading thing. There's a whole section, I believe there is, if, if not, I'll have to reorient it, but there should be a whole section on that, on, on particularly a section on white allies and the narratives of black and brown folks. Go and read those things, and I think you'll find that you can take um, comfort and, and sustenance from those who have gone before you, so you know you're not always just reinventing the wheel, that others have been there and they've done this work, and that now you're part of that work. Good idea. Another question. What would you say is one of the most important, or the single most important, thing that needs to happen to help America heal our race wounds? What should we focus on? Well, it's hard to know one because there obviously are so many. I think that I think the answer to that might be different for different people, and here's what I mean. I don't think I can really say, for instance, that the mass incarceration of black and brown bodies is more important than the destruction of black and brown schools and, and educational opportunities, or that it's more important than the housing crisis or the health care crisis or any of those. I think that different people have different skill sets and different areas of interest and specialization and wisdom so that in one community it might be one thing, in another community it might be another thing. So I think there are a lot of issues that we can throw ourselves into that people are already engaged in, but perhaps on a personal level what we can all do that would be most valuable is to do some of that critical interrogating of our own narrative that I mentioned at the end. And the reason that's so important is because if we can get clear on our own story, if we can get clear on how we ended up here, 
whether it is on the bottom of a structure, somewhere in the middle of a structure, or on the top of the structure, then we will have a far clearer understanding of how that structure operates than just from reading data and studies and position papers and really good blog posts and even good academic scholarly books. So I don't think there's one issue within the area of racism that's more important, but I do think that for all of us, getting clear on our own stories, interrogating our personal narratives, our family history, how we ended up in the jobs we have, how we ended up in the community we did, how our families ended up where they ended up is a huge piece of healing the culture because it will allow us to more clearly see the way that systems have brought us to this place. And then we can share that with our neighbors, with our colleagues, with our family, with our friends, and encourage them to do the same. And that's going to be critical if we're going to build the relationships across lines of identity that we need to build mass movements. We're not going to be able to build mass movements without a relationship, and we're not going to build relationship unless we understand ourselves. I can't get to know you if I don't understand me. So start with that. This is the, that, these are the quickest I've ever answered any question. So I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good about myself. Go, go ahead. Two of these questions I think do overlap. And okay. this next question perhaps you have already answered in a, okay. partially. Uh, how, how would one approach the idea that minorities need to take responsibility for their public image? I think that everybody has to be as personally responsible as they can. I'm a parent. I would be not a very good one if I didn't encourage my children to be very personally responsible for their public image, the way they are in the world, the way they act, um, the way they behave. So I think it's good advice for anybody, not just people of color, for anybody. But I think it's not an either or, and I think sometimes personal responsibility is used as a weapon against certain groups and then not applied to other groups. Because the reality is that the amount of personal irresponsibility uh, in which white wealthy folks on Wall Street engaged is far greater than all of the personal irresponsibility of all, all black and brown street criminals combined, and yet the outcomes for them have been quite different, have they not? And so in a sense, we can preach personal responsibility. I just want us to apply it in the mirror. Because the funny thing about personal responsibility I mean, I get like when people of color really preach, but people of color talk about that all the time. That, I think white folks think that that's new. I think white folks like sometimes think like Bill Cosby thought that up. Like when he gave his speech back in 04, blasting the black community. Black folks always talk. I, I worked in public housing projects for, for 15 months and pretty much everybody I worked with was African-American and poor. And oddly enough, they didn't spend a lot of time talking about whitey. That's not what they did. They were talking about how they were going to fix their problem because they knew that the cavalry was not coming, so to speak. They knew that the system was not going to bail them out. So that's what they did. They talked about personal responsibility, but it's really hard to take the kind of responsibility that alters systems when you are powerless, when you have someone's boot on your neck. It makes it very tough. So I think we want to make this a rather, thank you, rather than an either or, it's both and. These are not mutually exclusive things. We need to have both personal and collective responsibility for ourselves and for each other. That's how we're going to move forward as a society. As my uh, friend and colleague Jackie Wade, who's a retired now professor of social work at Middle Tennessee State and before that at Austin P in Clarksville, says, uh, African-American scholar, activist, educator, and, and public intellectual, says, you know, we all have a couple of nickels in this quarter, right? And, and she, as a black woman, is very clear when she speaks to black audiences, hey, we got to own our nickels. But just because black folks got to own their nickels and Latino folk got to own their nickels and everybody's got to own their nickels doesn't mean that white folks don't have to deal with our dimes, 
you know, or our dime and a nickel or whatever it is we have. We all, I think the funny thing about personal responsibility is when too often white folks on the right use it and they point at others and just notice the irony. When I tell you and I point at you and I say, you need to take personal responsibility. If you don't see the inherent irony in me telling you to take personal responsibility when really personal responsibility would mean I look in the mirror and I point at me, then you haven't been paying attention because that's the most ironic sort of misuse of a philosophy that I can even fathom. I think it's valuable, but only in the context of both and, that and collective responsibility. If we do both of those, I think we'll get somewhere. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you again for being Thank here you. tonight. You and bet. we as a church are proud to be part of this dialogue. Thank you. And we thank you, every one of you, for coming tonight. Take what we've heard and think about it, and let's see how we can take it home and apply it in our lives. Thank, thank you all you. so much.